Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 59, Establishing the Proprietary. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to help out, then please consider signing up for membership. All you have to do is go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. All it costs is $4.99 per month, and it gives you exclusive access to our premium feed, with a new episode every two weeks. All about the Americas. We're currently on the Inca. In our last episode, we looked at how the province of Carolina was created during the middle of the 17th century. We looked at the aborted attempt to colonise the area with French Huguenots, which set the development of the region back 30 years, while England fought its civil war. Following the restoration of Charles II, attention once more turned back to Carolina, as Charles sought to reward those who had helped him claim the throne. A group asked for land in America, which is how a royal charter was given for Carolina, which was issued to eight men, known as the Proprietors. This is where we left things last time. Today, I want to begin by getting a bit more into who the proprietors were. I'll quote the charter, which describes the men as, quote, Our right and trusty and well-beloved cousins and counsellors, Edward, Earl of Clarendon, our High Chancellor of England, and George, Duke of Abermala, Master of our horse and Captain General of all our forces. Our right trusty and well-beloved William, Lord Craven, John, Lord Berkeley, our right trusty and well-beloved Councillor Anthony, Lord Ashley, Councillor of our Exchequer, Sir George Carteret, Knight and Baronet, Vice-Chamberlain of our household, and our trusty and well-beloved Sir William Berkeley, Knight, and Sir John Collecton, Knight and Baronet. End quote. A very distinguished list. But I hope you noticed, more were distinguished than others. Sir William Berkeley and Sir John Collecton in particular could not be considered key figures in the grand scheme of things at the time, but they nonetheless had merited their inclusion. It was realised that it perhaps wouldn't be the best idea for a bunch of English aristocrats to simply organise a huge tract of land that none of them had ever been to before. So it was better to get people who were involved with some local knowledge. Collecton knew the area well, having spent time in Barbados, but William Berkeley was invaluable. We have, after all, met him previously in the narrative, as he was the long-time governor of Virginia. The knowledge of these two men, combined with the influence of the other six, would make for quite a formidable team. There were some tensions, though. For example, Berkeley was tasked with appointing a governor, since he knew the region best. But then the proprietors went back on the deal and gave the position to William Drummond of Virginia. Berkeley did, though, appoint a council of six, who themselves appointed civil and military officers. 
they also started the process of giving out land grants. These started small, as it seemed they didn't realise just how large Carolina was. It took until 1665 for them to have a clearer impression of just what they were doing, and what they wanted Carolina to look like. It was decided that Carolina would be split into three counties. Abamala was in the northeast, and then there was Clarendon, based upon the Cape Fear River, and then finally there was Craven, occupying what was to become South Carolina. The government was to be quite small, with a promise that it would be expanded later. To begin with, there would be a governor who would appoint the council. They were responsible to the proprietors, and were to follow their instructions. In addition, there were 12 representatives of the freeholders. These 19 were to form a legislature for the moment, and there would be some other more powerful general assembly down the line, although this was all vague and not mentioned in the charter. After some initial struggles, the colony soon began to pick up colonists, particularly from Puritans dissatisfied with life in New England, and colonists from Barbados, who all settled around Cape Fear in Clarendon. However, these were done independently, and they began to run into problems with the proprietors. At one point, the proprietors chose to just ignore this colony, which had been called Charlestown, and at one point had about 800 people living along a 60-mile stretch of the Cape Fear River. The Assembly wasn't interested in helping this group, and neither was London, preoccupied as it was with the more pressing matters of the Great Plague, the Great Fire, and war with the Dutch. There was then trouble with the natives. In an open fight, the colonists had the advantage. Guns will beat bows and arrows every time. But the Indians had no need to wage an open fight. They instead stole the cattle from the settlers, crippling the colonial economy. People began to leave Charlestown by late 1666, and by autumn 1667, it had been completely abandoned. The farms and homes were to be reclaimed by both the advancing tree line and Indians. It was a rather pathetic end to the Cape Fear section of the colony, and when it was eventually settled again further down the line, it would greatly confuse future colonists, who had no idea of the demise of its earlier form. If Clarendon was a failure, the more northern Abamala would prove to be a success. It had a governor and a charter describing the government by early 1665, beginning what was to become North Carolina. It had the immediate quality of the divide between the settled population and the outside force of London represented by the governor. That did not mean that they could not work together. For example, I mentioned earlier that only small grants of land had been made to the various settlers. The maximum landholding was less than half the size of those in Virginia. This was an issue for the Carolina citizens, and the proprietors could be sympathetic. 
they gave them the same landholding rights as Virginians in 1668. More concessions were made in 1669 to attract citizens, such as making it so that citizens would be free from prosecution for debt for the first five years they were settled there, and that only they would be permitted to trade with Indians. Non-Abamala citizens were forbade. This caused some issues with Virginians, who were not at all happy about the situation. They were forced to watch as indebted Virginians fled to Carolina in order to escape from prosecution, as well as cutting off their trade to the south. They didn't seem to notice the irony that Abamala was merely copying laws which had been passed in Virginia nearly 30 years previously. The government of Abamala changed in 1669 to reflect the growing number of colonists, as the proprietors feared being overwhelmed, and something called the Grand Model was created. Control fundamentally belonged to the proprietors, who planned to rule in a feudal manner. They would grant titles which carried tracts of land. Below the nobility were the land-owning and slave-holding freeholders, but this class, while free, was to have a minimal role in government. They were also to be below them, a group of tenant farmers, the leet men, who were in effect serfs. They were tied to the land and had to serve the lords. The Church of England was the established church, although there was to be toleration of those of differing opinions. The eight proprietors would rule from the Palatine Court, the supreme body of the land. The Grand Council was a mixture of executive, legislative, and judicial powers, and there was also a parliament which would represent both the proprietors and the freeholders. This was all designed by the proprietors to foster their ideal social system. It is a very interesting product of the early Enlightenment, offering a vision of the future much closer to the past than what would be eventually produced by the period. It placed great personal power in the hands of the proprietors and the council, but you will notice that I haven't yet mentioned the governor, whose power was greatly reduced by the settlement. Likewise, with the main bodies of government being the council and the palatine court, parliament, the sole body which represented the people, was weakened. It lost its ability to initiate legislation, which is quite a problem for a legislature. This is what the proprietors wanted. It was an issue for them that there is a huge difference in writing a fancy constitution and enforcing it. The grand model would go through significant revisions multiple times, but would never be fully implemented and it was finally abandoned in 1700. One of the lessons of history that those in power frequently fail to heed is that the people must have an avenue to initiate change. If they do not have a way to do this through peaceful civil channels, or they feel that existing civil channels no longer work and that people are not listening, they will turn to other means of trying to initiate change. It's really not hard to think of examples of this. Ultimately, it will drive the American Revolution, and it would drive the citizens of Carolina.
When Parliament lost its ability to initiate legislative action, people became frustrated with the lot they were given by the proprietors, and this anger vented itself through the only option left. Violence. Carolina of the late 17th century was a very disorderly place, while the region was hit by plague, hurricanes, floods, and drought. Goods were expensive to import, as they usually came via Virginia. Carolinan ports couldn't support the large ocean-going vessels, and so smuggling in the black market thrived. With all this going on, the people were suffering, and the proprietors were not listening. Their attentions having already turned towards new areas which might offer a faster profit, it is not at all surprising that a rebellion broke out in the mid-1670s, at the same time as Bacon's Rebellion going on to the north. This was known as Culpeper's Rebellion, but it was soon repressed. The proprietors were not harsh once they regained control of the region, and they tried to act wisely. But it is a very difficult task to manage a colony on the other side of the ocean. Abamala was even distanced from the centre of power within the colony. In 1670, the proprietors had begun to look towards the south, and then founded Charlestown, which, over time, would of course become Charleston, South Carolina. It formally took the name in 1683, but for convenience, I shall just call it Charleston from the off. Charleston had a much better harbour than the settlements to the north, something immediately recognised. It would take a decade or so to establish itself, but by 1690, it was the fifth largest city in North America. This will all be in the future, though. For now, we have only to note that the founding of Charleston indicated that the proprietors were looking southwards. We can cover the future and how Charleston would eventually split off into South Carolina in episodes further down the line. In our narrative, for the moment, we have only to cover Maryland, and then we can begin looking at Native American history, the context of what was happening in North America compared to wider global history, and then finally begin to move the narrative beyond the 1670s. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please consider signing up for membership. Just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. You can also check out our social media, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and at historyjamie on Twitter, in addition to sending me an email, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, I'll see you next time.